Let me pray for us tonight. All we have is Christ. We know that, Lord, and we're thankful. There are some here tonight that might not know you and might be struggling in their inner being, and they might be in a position where they don't know how to get out of their lostness. And so I pray that your word would impact them, and I pray that your word would convict their souls and that your spirit, O oh God, would teach them the great love of God. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 36, we're going to be there this evening. I was reminded of what we all need and I thought those two songs were just so fitting for tonight. Every one of us needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was some years ago at a Christmas event, visiting a certain man who was dying of cancer, and in a repetitive way, over the years, I had been asking him if I could talk to him about Christ. And knowing that his end was coming near, and as everybody was jolly and around the Christmas festivities, he was sitting over in a corner, and he looked more than depressed, he looked angry. And when I came over to him, I said, can I, can I talk to you tonight? Sure. And as we started to talk, and as I started to mention to him, can I share with you about Jesus? And although he didn't raise his fist, but every, everything in his face screamed out at me, leave me alone. So I was reminded tonight when we were singing these wonderful songs and tonight when we're thank you all right so I was reminded tonight based on those songs that we just sang, based on Psalm 36, I was reminded about this sad soul needing the gospel. Also, I was reminded just recently of a, of a friend's aunt, and she died at 95 in a local area. And this fella and his wife were telling us that they had been sharing the gospel of Christ with this aunt for many, many, many years. And here at the end of her life, at 85 years old, this soul says to her nephew, yes, it's time. And as he had the privilege of sharing the gospel with his aunt and seeing this soul then become alive and hope in Christ for the resurrection. What a beautiful picture. Tonight as we approach Psalms 36, I've entitled this, The Gospel According to David. And we're going to notice this, this evening, if you notice verse 1 of chapter 36, to the choir master, David was a talented musician. To the choir master of David, the servant of God. That word there is the slave of God. David wanted to do everything that he did, and he wanted to serve God in every way. And here in this particular psalm, David is writing a song, and David is contemplating the realities of human wickedness and, divi and divine benevolence. David is pondering both the total depravity of the heart, look at verses one to four, 
And then he's also going to ponder and think about the steadfast love of Yahweh. Let me just draw your attention to the text. Verses 1 together. Transgression speaks, or it has this way of singing to the wicked. Deep in his heart, there is no God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out, nor is it hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and to do good. He ponders trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that he is not good and he does not reject evil. Now tonight as we ponder this, this particular portion of Psalm 36, I want you to see this, that from the heart, sin is recognized. The heart is totally depraved. And then from the spring or the well of the heart, Jesus says, we have a character that is de developed from that heart. And then from the character, we notice that the total depravity is shown or proved by our mouths. And then from our mouths, we can notice in, in, in verse 4 that David is saying our behavior or our, um, our behavior and the way we act will will confirm our total depravity. So David in these first four verses is going to talk about the total depravity of man. And if you're here tonight, if you're a Christian, you understand then you need to come to the end of yourself and you've come to the end of yourself and you've surrendered your life to God and you're now relying on his divine benevolence, which we're going to see in chapter 36, verses 5 through 10. And then David's dependence upon this divine benevolence in verse uh, in verse 10 and, and 10 and 12. 5 to 9 and his dependence, verses 10 to 12. Notice with me verses 5, where he contrasts and as he's pondering, he says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heaven. And I just want you to notice, I'm not going to read every single word, but I want you to notice this. Your steadfast love, O Lord, verse 5. Look at verse 6. Your righteousness is like the mighty is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. But I want you to look and notice in verse 5, your steadfastness, O God. David turns from recognizing the total depravity that is in man and within himself, and he now is focused on God and his steadfast love. Look at verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God? Look at verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who love you. So David, we're seeing here in verse 1 to 4, he's contemplating the total depravity of man. And then he turns the corner and he starts to recognize, which we need to do. He starts to recognize the steadfast love of Yahweh, verses 5 to, 5 to 12. So I want to just, as we move into this psalm, I want to just point out David's theology. This is so important as we approach Psalm 36, David's theology. And I'm connecting it purposefully, the gospel according to David, because I'm specifically pointing it to Christ. David's theology. David knew the origin of sin and death. And if you notice verse 8 of this chapter 36, you're going to notice David says, and you give them drink from the river of your delight. This was actually a reference to the garden where Adam and Eve spent their time. And so you'll notice here, David's theology was understanding Adam and Eve. Do you know that David knew the book of Genesis? That was the nation of Israel's history book. 
David knew Genesis. David understood the origin of sin and death. And in fact, he understood clearly that Adam and Eve sinned. They were deceived. And in fact, if you read Genesis chapter 3, you're going to notice when we think about the total depravity of man. I mean, isn't it interesting? People are trying to figure out why is there sin and death? Why are people so evil and wicked? And they never look inward to themselves, nor look inward to people in society. Here we see David understands God did not bring sin into the world. We recognize here Satan came to Eve and said, you shall surely not die if you eat this apple. And so Eve was deceived and ate of it and gave to her husband. And it even says in verse 13 that she was deceived. Eve was. So we see here, David understood the origins of sin and death. David also understood God's promises to Adam and Eve. And in verse 15 of chapter 3, David is making this point that the woman's seed, or uh, in chapter 3 of Genesis, chapter, Genesis chapter 3 to verse, fif verse 15, God is making this point to Eve that he's actually making the point to Satan. Making the point to Satan that the, the woman's seed shall crush your head. And so we see here that God has made a promise to Adam and Eve. And we see them eagerly waiting for this promise of the seed. And um, we also see in Genesis 22, David knew this, the promise of the Savior. He understood the promise of the Savior. God would provide. In fact, he knew that story of, of Abraham, of Abram. When Abraham went to the mountain and he was going to sacrifice Isaac, and he was going to be obedient to God. And he was going to sacrifice his only son. And as he's there and he ties him up on the sacrificial altar. And he's ready to slay his only son. His only begotten son. The son that he loves. He's ready to slay that son. And you know what happens? David sees a, a ram in the thicket. And in fact he was told by the, by the Lord. Don't, don't slay the son. And God provided there. God provided more than just that sacrifice, but he provided a picture for generations and generations and generations. He provided a picture for those Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints to understand this was prophecy about Jesus Christ. And so David understood this. In fact, David understood and he saw, in fact, if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 31, not only did David understand the promise David understood the Savior from Genesis chapter 22, but he understood the Messiah would be coming. He understood that. In fact, we know that from Acts chapter 2, verse 31, where Luke is writing, and Luke is writing about Peter preaching to the nation of Israel, and Peter is preaching, and here's what he's saying about David. David saw, and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would neither be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This would be a perfect Messiah, a perfect substitute, a perfect righteous one, a perfect one that would take care of the sinfulness of man because we are totally depraved. And if you don't believe me, let's look at verses 1 together. The human heart is totally depraved, and tonight God's word wants to convict us, and he wants us, just like that song that we sang the first one about how God brings us low. And when we ponder the whole sinfulness of man, our own depravity, we're going to realize that we, need a, that we need the gospel. We're going to realize that we need his steadfast love.
and it's going to be that clear to us. The human heart is totally depraved. And look at verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. In fact, deep in his heart, many translations say deep in my heart. So David is making clear that it's not just a general total depravity of man, but it's in my own heart. And you know David and Bathsheba. Not just his sexual sin with Bathsheba, but his murder against Uriah. His deception for who knows how long. David understood his own sinful heart. There is no, in fact, he says this, transgression, notice how he personifies it, transgressions speak. Transgressions speak to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. The human heart has no fear of God. He is a consuming fire, the Bible says, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. He is a consuming fire. People should fear God. And in fact, when you look at the flood of Noah, when you look at how God eradicated sinners and sin so his holiness would be magnified. The human heart is totally depraved, verse 1. If you notice here, the human heart has no fear of God, although God is a consuming fire. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitfully, the heart is deceitful above all things. I mean, do you see what he's saying right here? Jeremiah is the prophet, the weeping prophet. He gets the heart of man. And he's saying the heart is the most deceitful the heart is the most deceitful above all things is your brain deceived it's because of your heart it's because of your sick and corrupt heart in fact and desperately sick jeremiah 9, jeremiah 17:9 says desperately sick and who can understand it i mean have you thought about your own heart if you're a Christian, you get this. You get this, and this is a reminder. But if you're here tonight and you just don't understand why you're in such misery, we're trying to make it clear from God's word in Psalms 36 that you have a heart problem. Your heart is totally depraved. In fact, the Bible says your heart is dead. In fact, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 as well says your heart is dead, as well as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And so the heart is the fountain of sin. Let me illustrate it this way. When you look at Mark chapter 7, this is interesting. Jesus comes into a setting and he ticks off the Pharisees immediately. And the reason that they're irate is, can you guess? In, in Mark chapter 7, the reason that they're irate is because he hasn't washed his hands. And they, are, they're, they have blown gaskets. Their heads are about ready to pop off. Simply because as him and his disciples start to eat, nobody has done the ceremonial washings, which, by the way, the Pharisees have made up anyway. In fact, Jesus confronts them that this isn't the word of God. This is your own laws that you're creating to put people into bondage. And so they are totally upset that Jesus and his disciples have not washed outwardly their hands. And so what Jesus is doing through this illustration, he says in Mark chapter 7, verses 23, verses 20 to 23, and this is Jesus teaching them on the human heart. When they, when they want to get all upset because the outward is not clean, 
Jesus goes right for the heart of the issues, and he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles a person. He's trying to make it clear. Yes, your character, yes, your mouth, yes, your behavior, it's all corrupt, but it comes from that fountain of the heart. And so what comes out of a person is what defiles a person. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. You're not dirty because of something outward. You're not dirty before God. You're not corrupt before God because of something outward. There's nothing here. In fact, you can go to a gym and play basketball with the guys and hear them throw the F-bomb as many times as they want to. That doesn't make you dirty. What makes you dirty is your own heart. You have a totally depraved heart. You could be on the construction site and doing your job, and all these people are doing gross sins, and you keep yourself as a Christian separated because you know these issues. But if you're not a Christian, you need to understand this. It's not that outward thing that makes you dirty. It's your own heart. And you're like a magnet. You want that. And even as Christians, we struggle with this at times. I mean, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, you're going to notice, do not be involved with sexual immorality. Watch the filthiness from your mouth. And Paul's making it really clear to the Ephesian Christians about walking worthy of Christ. And he's going like this. Don't even do it. Don't even do it, Christian. And I'm just telling you, if you're a Christian, you struggle with sin. Although you've been regenerated, your heart's been made new, and you can count on that, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you can count on having a new nature. But if you're a non-Christian here tonight, and you start to see a glimpse of your own heart, that's good. That's really good, because that's where sin com comes from. That's where this older man sitting in a corner with his hand just shaking, I don't want to hear anything about Jesus. I heard R.C. Sproul one time commenting on hell and the gnashing of teeth and how the gnashing of teeth is going to represent. You know, I, didn't, I wasn't really clear on this until I heard R.C. Sproul make it really, really clear. That's just the arrogance of the heart. That's just the defilement of the heart. That's just the anger of the heart. That's just the pride of man. I want nothing to do with you, God. So the human heart expresses itself and so we see here Jesus confronting that. I mean, there are a bunch of lists here, by the way. I mentioned Mark chapter 7, but you could look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul's raising up Timothy to protect the church, and one thing he's doing is protecting the church from sin. 1 Timothy chapter 1, you look at verse 9 and 10. I won't go into all the lists, but I think it's really, really important. If you want to understand the gospel according to David, you need to understand verses 1 to 4 and how he's nailing the depravity of man. The human heart is idolatrous. David understood that. He wanted what he wanted. All of his men are out in the all of his men are out to battle, and David is on top of his kingdom, and he happens to have his eye catch something very beautiful, and he wanted it, and he took it, and he even killed for it and deceived for it. The heart is desperately wicked. We are in the same boat together. And in fact, if you look at point number two, not just the heart, but the human character 
demonstrates the depraved heart. If you're sitting here trying to think, well, okay, I see glimpses of that. I'm telling you verse 2. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out. This is such a human experience. We do what we want to do because we have idolatrous hearts and we think it's not going to be found out. I heard a wise pastor one time tell me, it will be found out. And if you confess it before it's found out, he will show you mercy. I mean, that's comforting news. But sticking with verse 2 here, the depraved heart flatters himself, and so his character, his character is one of pride. Do you see here? He flatters himself. He just thinks he's got it all tied down. He just thinks he's got it all tied down. He, in fact, the human heart praises himself. He flatters himself in his own eyes, and his character of pride is easily seen to those of us who have discerning eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out. He does not think, he does not think he's lying naked in his inner person before an omnipresent, omniscient, sovereign, holy God. He doesn't get it. So it starts with the heart. It's the fountain. From that is the character, the pride. Also we see here, verse 3, the mouth. It, it, the human mouth and character re reveal the depravity of man. Verse 3, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. And he has, and he has ceased to act wisely and to do good. If you notice James chapter 3, verse 6, we see a very consistent teaching from the Bible in terms of man's mouth. And James, the, the brother of Jesus, says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. And you know it and I know it. <laughs> Haven't you ever just said something and you're like, uh-oh, you know, it's gotten out there. Or you said something and you didn't realize what you said and as time goes by, you realize that this thing has caught fire and it's hurt people. The words of the mouth are trouble and deceit and he has ceased to act wisely and to do good. That's the depraved person. But in James chapter 3, verse 8, it says, no human being can tame the tongue. Don't you think that verse would drive us to Christ? No human being can tame the tongue. And because of your tongue, it manifests your own sinfulness. You need a savior, Jesus Christ. So the human being cannot tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So we see here from the heart to the character to the mouth, and then we see here the behavior. I mean, I'm hoping that I'm being clear with this, that you can just see a depraved heart is manifested through the heart, through the character, through the mouth, and then through the behavior. All of a sudden, you just have behavior that's sinful. Where did that come from? Not your brain. It came from your heart. When you read James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, you can't say that God caused this. It was because of your own desires, your own will, your own wants. So the human behavior confirms the depraved heart. Verse 4, he blots trouble, or I'm sorry, he plots trouble while on his bed, and he sets himself in a way that is not good. 
and he does not reject evil. A sinful heart is developed, and you notice here, verse 4, it's developed in private. He plots trouble while on his bed. You know, it's interesting because many of us have a good face. Many of us can have a great moral face. I talked to a guy yesterday that I hadn't talked to in 40 years, and I can't tell you how many times he said to me, we'll get together, we'll get together. And every antenna of my discernment kept flipping on saying, okay, I'd like to do that. I genuinely would like to do that. But there's something here that I'm perceiving that that's not going to happen. I'm just questioning his character. I could be right or wrong. But I'm just telling you, man plots evil on his bed. He does it privately. We have a good way of putting a face on, and yet when we're at home, this is where the work begins. We check ourselves at home and while we're on our bed. What is going on in the inner person? What is going on in private? We, we're talking about this in Ephesians chapter 1 at Sunday school for the next couple weeks. He has positioned you in Christ, and he's given you resources to walk worthy. He has made it possible for you to be successful as a Christian. And you might be sitting here tonight thinking, why am I not successful? And I'm telling you because you don't understand sin and you don't understand the effects it has in your own life and what an assault it is on a God who is full of wrath. And you're lacking fear. That's what you're lacking. And those need to be developed in your own life. And so the human behavior, it confirms a depraved heart. The bad is chosen. Why is the bad always chosen? Look at verse 4. He plots it in his bed, and he sets himself in a way that he does not do good. He always chooses bad. Why? Why? David says he's a slave of God, and he understands to be free in the Lord. We know this. Galatians chapter Five, I believe it is. We've been set free in Christ. And why is it that for some reason we just keep choosing the bad thing? We need to figure this out. But it does start with your own depravity, your own sinfulness, and your lack of understanding about a Savior who loves you. And so we will not, um, we are not as bad as we could be. So although this seems bad, and I know people could be in this position where it's like, well, I'm not that bad. Let me just explain this. You're not as bad as you could be. It could be worse. And it's by God's general grace. And you know what he gives you? A conscience. He gives you a conscience to know right and wrong. And, and the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2, don't mess with this conscience. In fact, train it on truth. Train it on truth. The other thing God gives you where it, it could be worse, but here's what he gives you. He gives you your family, your mom and dad. Some of you say, well, I don't have a mom and dad. I didn't either. I had a mom. She tried her best. But I had a lot of people in the community that showed me pictures that I needed to see. And in fact, God ultimately saved me, not from non-Christians, but by his word. And here's the point. It could be worse. Your sin could be worse. We are not as bad as we could be. You know, when David was thinking about this, he understood Goliath, who was a war machine. Goliath would take his sword out, and he would slay everybody in here and not even think about it. Clean his sword off and go have something to drink. David understood Goliath's heart. He understood Saul's, Saul's heart. 
David also understood his own heart, his heart with Bathsheba. David understood the heart of his son, Absalom. Absalom wanted to kill his father, David. Absalom did. Wanted to take over the kingdom and wanted to kill David. When we look at the Bible, we see Joseph. Maybe you're not as bad as Joseph's brothers. Maybe you're not as bad as Judas Iscariot. There was a man by the name of Adolf Eichmann. His name was Adolf Eichmann. And in 1961, Adolf Eichmann, who was a Nazi officer who is recorded to have put to death 1.5 million Jews in World War II in the Holocaust. In 1961, he went on a national, he went on a, his trial was, was communicated nationally. And the amazing part about Adolf um, Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann, the, the interesting part that as I was reading this story, the interesting part about it is having killed one and a half million people or, or been instrumental in the architect and in the design of making sure 1.5 million people are dead. This is the guy that's now on trial. And as he went on, went on trial, everybody kept thinking, what a monster, what a monster, an absolute monster. And as people would hear him during the trial, one of the things that caused great fear to come into the people was they realized he was just a man. Now think about that for a second. They realized he was just a man. We're not as bad as we could be. But you know and I know what stirs in this wicked heart of ours. And this is where David turns the corner. And by the way, here's what Romans tells us. If we've committed one sin, here's what Galatians tells us as well. If we've committed one sin, you're corrupt in the sight of a holy God and a holy judge. If you commit one sin, you're guilty. One. And you know as well as I do, we don't just have one sin to our name. We have the whole gamut. So as David turns his corner, you can see, and in fact, he kind of does it in an abrupt way. He, he, he then, all of a sudden, he's talking about the de total depravity of the heart, and then he turns this corner, and boom, he talks about divine benevolence. Now, I want you to see this, and I'll move through this quickly as we kind of wrap up. Verse 5 and 6, the Lord saves. You can count on this. Look at, look at verse 6 at the very end. Man and beasts, you save, O Lord. Listen to that. Man and beasts, you save, O Lord. Now, I can't promise you that your dog will be in heaven. I don't think that that's what this is saying. But I can tell you the focus here is man and, or beast and man, you save, O Lord. And I'm just telling you, when you look at this verse, your steadfast love, he's talking about why does God save? God saves because that's who God is. That's his character. And in fact, if you notice here, his love is steadfast. It's immovable. And in fact, those who he chooses and those who he saves, he is not going to turn you away. Look at David's life as an example. David did the whole gamut of sin, and deeply he did it. And yet God's steadfast love was upon David. And so when you see here God's character, why would God save any of us is the question. It's not why would God let evil be rampant. Man is sinful. Man is causing sin to be rampant. God is saving. And he's, he's just not to save any. And so his divine benevolence, your steadfast love, O Lord, 
it extends to the heavens. He's talking about God's character. This is why God loves. Because your steadfast love, O Lord, it extends to the heaven. Your faithfulness to the clouds. God's love, his faithfulness. Your righteousness is like the mountains. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. In God's, in, in God's divine benevolence, and that word be benevolence there means God just sees the beggar. He sees the one who needs to have charity. He sees the one with great need. If you approach God and you don't think you need something, I'm telling you, you won't get anything. And so in here, divine benevolence is the Lord, he saves because of his character. And in fact, when you, when you read verse 5, it extends. There is nobody outside of his purview. I mean, how exciting for this, for this nephew and niece to see their 85-year-old aunt come to the Lord after all these years of persevering and trying to share the gospel. Do you see here your steadfast love that extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds? This is just giving us a picture. It's just giving us a picture that, that it extends. It's available. And so Christ's love is far-reaching, and we need to hear that. Christ's saving love can be found. Your faithfulness to the clouds at the end of verse 5. So God's righteousness. You notice his character of righteousness. So David, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about, we're talking about total depravity, and now we're talking about God's righteousness. So you can't come into the, you can't come into the judge's chambers without being completely guiltless and completely innocent. And if you notice here, verse six, his judgments are deep. And really what that's talking about, his judgments are certain. You can count on his judgment. Your judgments are like the great deep. And so your righteousness is spectacularly holy. Look at verse six. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. They're majestic. In fact, remember when the nation of Israel is, they're cruising, the nation of Israel is going, and God is showing himself by cloud and by fire, and Moses is the only one being able to go up on the mount of God. All this to say is this. You need the righteousness of God. You need it. And in fact, you should think about it daily. And what this is communicating to us is Jesus Christ. You need his righteousness. Listen to this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. To many of us, it's very familiar. He, speaking of Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, that's speaking about a substitute, he who knew no sin, he was perfect, he was born of a virgin. He who knew no sin became sin. He was crushed on that cross. He was crucified on that cross. He died, he was buried, and he rose again, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And so David understands the righteousness of God, and that's why we need to clearly understand he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. We have this righteousness given to us. It's covering us. And so I want you to see here not only his salvation, but in verse 7, he secures. Because we're talking about this righteousness that is given to us. How precious is your steadfast love, O Lord. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And I just want you to understand how God is speaking to us about eternal security. 
I mean, what a comfort to understand and to know eternal security. If Jesus' righteousness has been applied to me, can I count on that? Yes, you can. There is eternal security. In fact, in Luke chapter 13, verses 34, Luke chapter 13, it's a chapter where Jesus is telling the masses of the crowds, enter by the narrow gate. He is the narrow gate. Jesus is. And then he turns the corner and he sees these totally depraved Pharisees who are just railing their fists and pride and all of their attributes towards Jesus. And Jesus says to them, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, because they represent Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often, how often would I gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing? I mean, Christ wants to take you and put you under the wing of his protection. He wants to cover you in his righteousness. He wants to protect you from the wrath of God. He wants to protect you. And the plea here today is to come to him. So the Lord saves, he secures, and then lastly, he satisfies, verse 8 and 9. And then we notice here we're feasting. In fact, they feast on the abundance of your house. And, you know, I was thinking about this, and for time's sake, just kind of getting to the point. You know, when you come into the Lord's house, in the New Testament, it was sacrificial systems. And in the New Testament, we're going to see the communion service. And we see Christ represented there. And you're going to notice here, we have a banquet feast. We celebrate it every Sunday. Their thirst is quenched. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, you give them drink from the river of your delight. It's a reference to the garden of of e the Garden of Eden. And Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, uh, verses 13 and 14, everyone who drinks. And Jesus is trying to give her a lesson. This is a prostitute. This is, this is let, me, let me retract that. I'm not saying she's a prostitute. She's definitely an immoral person. She's had five husbands. And Jesus is talking with her, and he reveals her own sinful heart to her. And then Jesus is explaining to her Everyone who drinks of this water, pointing to himself, because she was there at noontime trying to get water from the well. And Jesus is switching the gears and switching from a physical picture to a spiritual picture. And he's saying to her, if, if everyone who drinks of this water, speaking about him, or if everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, he's actually speaking about the water in the, in the well and in the pail that she had. But whoever drinks of the water that I give, and he's speaking to himself, will never thirst again. The water that I give will become to him a new spring of water welling up. So I just want you to see here the salvation of the Lord, the security of the Lord, and, this, and how the Lord satisfies. These are, uh, there is assurance in lives because of the revealed truth of God. Look at verse 9 when he says here, For with you is the fountain of life, and we saw in John chapter 1 that Jesus, who's all eternal, Jesus, in him is life and light. And so we see here that there's assurance in life because of the revealed truth of God. Um, we notice that in John chapter 1, verse 4. So lastly, as David, as he's concluding and he's first seeing the totally depravity of man, he's seeing the, the divine benevolence of God, and then lastly, he prays for dependence. 
Oh, Lord, may we experience your love and righteousness. Look at verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. God, God's love needs to be experienced in Jesus Christ. Verse 11, David prays, protect me from Satan in the world. Verse 11, let not the foot of the arrogant come upon me. That would be the world. That would be also Satan. Nor the hand of the wicked drive me out. Satan nor the world. And I'm telling you, Satan and the world want to offer you everything. They want you to have everything. But David is saying, Lord, please protect us. Protect me. Protect your church. And then lastly in verse 12, the power of love. There the evildoer lie fallen. There is power in this steadfast love. In fact, when you, when you notice verse 12, there. He's talking about in verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love. There the evildoer lie fallen. God overcomes evil by his great love. And then they are thrust down, unable to rise because of his great and victorious son, Jesus Christ. There's a lot there. I hope you, I hope you see the challenge that David's giving us. Let me pray for us and we'll sing our last song. Thank you, Lord, for this, this good news that we see from David. We're thankful that you save us from our own sin. And so please help us to think deeply upon this. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our last song?